Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's another lockdown special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford Bloor from Football 365. Now I think I've got this right. The Premier League say they stand to lose 1.13 billion pounds. Clubs want government help and say a suspended season would cost them 762 million pounds. Players say they want to know where their 30% pay cut would go. And the FA say, well, nothing actually. Two questions I have to ask. Is football's lack of trust and solidarity making a terrible situation worse? And will the game pay a huge cost for its collective selfishness in the years to come? You got first go, Seb. <laughs> it's a hospital pass, isn't it? Question one, absolutely. The game is at war with itself, Mike. Um, I mean, the three branches, the PFA, the Premier League clubs and the players, it's just so ugly. I think the key word there is trust. Roy Smith wrote an excellent column for the New York Times over the weekend about how little of it there seems to be between these bodies. And so what we're seeing now is, well, what it feels like from a public perspective is no progress is really being made. It's just a continuous game of one-upmanship to see who can come out of this looking the least greedy, or in some instances, the most greedy. It's a kind of inadvertent competition. But the game's reputation every day is getting lower and lower, and it's very, very dispiriting to watch. I mean, whether there's a long-term effect of this, I don't know. I suspect there will be... Um, I mean, people tend to have short memories. I mean, I, I suspect as soon as the game returns and the crowds fill into the stadiums again and, and, and everything returns to normal, some of these things will, will vanish from people's minds. I hope not, though, because I feel like this is a point in the game's history where people should be paying attention and demanding some kind of reform in some way because the mechanisms just aren't working as they should be. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with that. I hear anecdotally of people saying, that's it, I've had enough with Premier League football. If I want to watch my football, I'll go down to the local non-league club or, or wherever. Aid, where do you see this going? Because it is changing by the day, isn't it? Oh, I don't know where to start, Mike. I really don't. It's, it's a complete mess. 
I'm confused. I've got to be honest, because my understanding when we were talking, not just last week, but the week before, maybe the week before that, about players making a sacrifice in terms of their salaries, the money that we envisaged them collecting into a fund, I thought was supposed to go towards protecting football as we know it in this country, the lower league clubs, the smaller clubs, making sure that people don't lose their jobs further down the pyramid, that we can keep everything nice and intact rather than seeing clubs go bust. I didn't envisage super rich Premier League clubs with their begging bowl out saying, please, 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 can we change your contracts and pay you 30% less because we're going to take a big hit here. I did not see that. Not not from these wealthy clubs that post huge profits, unbelievable turnovers that bring in vast amounts of money that can easily go out there and get themselves bridging loans in the meantime. I think it's a real mess. The footballers themselves, I, I had the feeling that it was the intervention of the politicians that has riled them big time here. I do believe they were on the verge of coming up with a plan. I think along those lines, some of the money going towards the football pyramid lower down and some of it going towards the NHS and their charities. With the Premier League and more importantly, the politicians suggesting that they take this 30% cut for the clubs, I think that has wound them up big time and it's put us further back than square one. Yeah, there are so many mixed messages and double standards at play here. You know, We did hear that maybe the players would essentially take it out of the Premier League's hand and set up their own charitable institution, which seems a great idea, provided, I think, it doesn't come under the PFA and their bureaucracy. I think that's really important as well. But we've also got the conflicting stories that, you know, perhaps the government are going to conspire so that there will be a possible return of Premier League football in June behind closed doors to help almost, you know, social normality again. What do you make of that, Seb? Uh, I'm a bit troubled by it, Mike, because it seems like the the plan for returning to footballing normality is being given more impetus than sort of whatever strategy can be come up with to help financially with this situation. Just on the PFA, Mike, what I'm confused by is is one of the things that seemed to come out of the weekend was this this claim that actually a 30% wage cut would harm tax revenue, which economically is very logical. What I don't understand yeah, is... They said 200 million, didn't they? They, they did, they did. And, and I, I, I'm not bright enough to contest that figure, but I'm sure it's accurate. I'm just wondering why that didn't appear in their first statement. Because initially the PFA said the delay in a call to action was being caused by a logistical problem. It was all just far too complicated and they wanted uniformity across the different divisions and they wanted to make sure that there wasn't any opportunism going on. And then as a response to what I think was the kind of the, you know, the captain's plan when there was going to be a big pool of money and it was going to be directed toward the NHS uh, or the sort of the growing momentum behind a 30% wage cut, they then came out and said, well, no, we can't do that. I, I think that really characterizes this whole episode quite well in the kind of the, just in terms of how much misinformation there's been, because this is the problem. Because this is a reaction, it seems like PR. It doesn't seem like coherent strategy. It doesn't seem like a collection of bodies trying to co- think constructively about the way forward. It just seems like jockeying for position. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I, that really troubles I, me. I agree. I agree. I, I think, yeah. And and who is going to divvy up the money? That's yeah, that's yeah, the other absolutely. point here, isn't it? In, in terms of where is it going to go to and who 
ultimately is going to decide it. I, I'm with you on this. I think the, the PFA has clearly got logic, the fact that, yes, less tax will be going to the government, therefore the NHS wouldn't be receiving as much money. I, I do get that, but it, it felt like they were trying to get a justification for for a lower salary sacrifice there, even though I fundamentally disagree with it, as I've outlined, for in terms of helping clubs out. So, yeah, I, I think... I think the really complex situation is yet to come. Once they do decide on, on, on a system and, and, and whatnot, and there is a sacrifice made, who's in charge of the fund? Where does it go? How do they choose how much each club gets, how much each, you know, <laughs> how much the NHS gets, which part of the NHS? It, it's going to be very, very complicated. But, but yeah, yeah, it, it's a horrendous mess. And, and unfortunately the stain on football's reputation is there for all to see. And, and I, d- I don't think the public will forget it. They'll lap up football when it, when it returns. I, I've got no doubt about that, but I do think that footballers and the football authorities will, will have their sort of reputations in the public arena damaged by, by this squabbling. It, it's pretty ugly. Yeah. Cause speaking of football authorities, you know, we've heard from the Premier League or there's been briefings from the Premier League, similarly from the players, the captains, and also the PFA. The one voice that hasn't been heard is that of the FA. Now, you know, again, there's some talk that uh, Greg Clark, who is probably the most original empty suit that I can think of in football <laughs> administration, is probably going to come out with some you know, more empty rhetoric about the situation. Does this situation, Seb, sum up the impotence of the FA. They're meant to be in charge of the whole shooting match, but on the key issue, which is damaging the game, they've not been heard from. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. But we've seen this this story before. This is, I mean, I remember there was a few months ago, Greg Clark talking about the issue of racism in European football and, you know, him suggesting that, you know, UEFA take this really, really seriously. And, you know, that if it wasn't such a serious issue, you'd laugh. With this, I think what it reveals is something we've known for a long time. The FA don't control the game. They haven't done for, you know, nearly 30 years. They don't exert any real control over the clubs. The Premier League is the dominant force. And even the Premier League doesn't seem to be able to control the players. So I don't actually know how football's hierarchy works anymore. I'm not sure in terms of when club got, football. Sorry, Mike, go ahead. When you've got, you know, Richard Masters, I, I saw a quote from him in, in February. You know, he said, and I'll quote, Obviously, we're a great football competition, but also a force for social good. If that is the case, why not live up to those words? Yeah, well, I do. I do think that the the Premier League has done a lot of good things for communities and charities down the years. But yeah, this is this is one of those situations. But it's not just them, is it? Everyone has to come together. They they have to join forces with the players, join forces with with the EFL and the FA, and, and come to some some joint agreement on on the FA surely in this scenario they should be the ones acting as the, as the great middleman I, I would have thought that they sit in between all of these individual bodies and they're the ones that should be mediating and they're the ones that should be organizing this and pulling it all together maybe that's what's going on behind the scenes I have I have my doubts I'm skeptical that that's what's happening but that would surely be their their stock position here it Honestly, I fear, and I fear that we're going to be talking about this in weeks and weeks and weeks to come, because I don't see a quick fix. I really don't. It's it's become too messy, 
And I think the government getting involved has exacerbated the problem hugely. Yeah, talking about getting messy, I think the, the messiest development probably so far was Liverpool's you know, unconscionable decision to try and get government money to help furlough their non-playing staff. That sent me to my little treasure box. I have an, uh, an album, a vinyl album, which was signed by Bill Shankly before his, just before his death. And on that album, Shankly talks about you know, wonderful football themes, building great teams, great players like you know, De Stefano, Finney, people like that. But he also talks about his politics and Liverpool as a club built in the image of almost benevolent socialism. You know, I don't want to get too political about this, but when you have something like you know, that type of identity built into the club and you, you basically go to the government to help your venture capitalist owners, something has got to give. And what I found really interesting was that Liverpool fans, pretty much to a man and woman, loathed that idea. And almost the, the hypocrisy, again, there's another quote here. Peter Moore, the, the chief exec, who I think has done a very good job, last year, and I quote, today, when we speak about business questions, we ask ourselves, what would Shankly have done? What would Bill have said in this situation? Now, that's sophistry, because obviously, hard business decisions have been taken. What do you feel about the fans' reaction, Seb? I was really heartened by it. I think we talked on the last episode, Mike, you talk, you spoke about sort of the need to lessen the impact of tribalism, to dilute it, to try to do what we can to strip it away from the game. And this has been one of those instances where I quite agree with you. When, when that announcement came out, which shocked, I think, everyone, given what Liverpool is supposed to stand for, certainly not putting their hand in the public's pocket. I was very encouraged by the Liverpool fans' response. It was a, you know, universal condemnation. Which I think is really important because I, I I think what could happen now is you've had two clubs take advantage of the government's furlough scheme, a third, which who we, we all expected to, it's Mike Ashley's Newcastle, that was always going to happen, of course. But once clubs like Liverpool and Tottenham do this, then it almost deflects attention away from anybody else that that wants to. So the smaller clubs, the clubs with the, the lesser fan bases, who don't have quite as pronounced a set of values, perhaps, so I think what was really important is, is very quickly afterwards, Manchester City came out and said that they weren't going to be taking advantage of the scheme, which is really good news. And I, I think it was also in the same way that the community condemned Liverpool and Tottenham's response and Newcastle's, people applauded Manchester City. And obviously they're at the centre of a completely different argument at the moment. So it's very encouraging for everyone to kind of put down their weapons briefly and say that that is the right thing to be doing because you can afford to be doing it. So... It kind of harks back to our conversation about, you know, what is the lifespan of this kind of benevolence within, you know, this kind of community within the within different fan bases? I don't know, but it was nice to see that it does still exist in some form. Yeah, I think on this one, Mike, at clubs like Liverpool and Spurs, if if they don't back out of this, which is it's a disgusting decision on their part to take the government money here, it's scandalous. It really is. I th- I think they should be barred from handing out new contracts, barred from from making signings in the next transfer window, barred from spending money to some degree yeah. because they're supposed to be short. I mean, you, you suddenly take the, take the government 
handouts. And then once football's up and running again, you start paying agents £2 million for a, for a transaction, spending £100 million on a player, and you expect everyone else to sit around and say, oh, no problem, that's all fine. No, it's, it's just not It's not on, is it? And I think that, that some some kind of windfall tax or or ban on new contracts, on, on new signings, has to be made to these clubs just to, to put it out there. This is not what this scheme was designed for. It's, it's outrageous. Uh, you know, I I thought about the potential of something like you know some form of of social levy applied to a club's income, and almost fed into a central community pot. I suppose a little bit like you know the sort of idea that the players are talking about. Mm. Now clubs would still be able to identify local projects and priorities, but there's a big picture view that football is actually using its wealth instead of abusing its influence. You agree with that, Seb? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we there's something that troubles me about something we, we we talked about earlier about, and this this relates to how football uses its wealth. So when Richard Masters says that we're obviously a great football competition, but also a force for social good, I accept that to a degree. But there's a statistic which really describes what the Premier League is and, and what football is at the top level in this country, and that's that I think I've got these statistics right. Between 2016 and 2019, which was the previous broadcasting contract, the Premier League collectively paid £71.5.4 million to Football Foundation for the funding of grassroots causes. And that equates to less than 1% of the total value of that broadcasting contract. So I would quibble with the idea that it's this that it's really a force for social good. I know there are exceptions. I know there are individual players and clubs that do wonderful things. But I I think that left to its own devices, you can't trust football to behave benevolently, not at this level anyway. And so you're really left with no choice but to, if you want to have this kind of scheme, like a, a, your social levy, uh, levy idea, well, certainly not Daniel Levy, is it? <laughs> um, if you want your social <laughs> levy idea, then you have to yeah. make it legislative, I think, Mike, because I market forces yeah. of football don't work in this way, in, in my experience. Yeah, Pe- people in football, players, coaches, the staff, a lot of them have a conscience. And, and the people yeah. I speak to in football, they're always thinking about the impression they're giving to the outside. They always want to help. They really do. I, I genuinely believe that people involved in the game feel privileged feel lucky and they want to put something back the vast majority do not everybody but the vast majority i think that clubs want to as well but what we're seeing here is that that's all well and good until they're in a sticky situation financially and all of a sudden charity begins at home and 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 all of that seems to seems to have gone out of the window and it's it's let's protect ourselves now and, and and not worry about the other people. So, so yeah, I think that's what's happening here. But people in football, I genuinely believe it. I don't think they, they deserve the, the slight that I think will be put on them here. Well, let's just do something really radical and talk about football, shall we? <laughs> um, yes, please. <laughs> I'd like to, over the next few episodes, almost to provide an ABC of Premier League managers and management. The idea, we'll appraise them, maybe four managers per show. Uh, in alphabetical order, and we'll judge the manager's impact as a leader, a tactician, a coach, and a communicator. You know, maybe you end up giving them marks out of 10. want to start with Carlo Ancelotti. Impresses me hugely as 
a quiet leader, informed by his background in rural Italy, obviously hugely adept politically when you think of the people he's worked for, and now Everton have thrown in their lot with him. Will they get value for money, Seb, for their, what is it, seven million a year, whatever it is? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think part of this depends on what kind of football emerges after the coronavirus pandemic dissipates because obviously Everton are, are trying to transition to an, into a new stadium. They spent an awful lot of money up until this point and a lot of it not particularly well. And that is a side that needs reinforcement, particularly in defence, possibly in midfield too, and you know probably up front. So it depends. I really admire uh, Colin Ancelotti. I think he's a deeply charming man, which helps with the press always. But obviously, if you look at his CV, Everton is a little bit of an oddity compared with the places that he has been because he's he's typically been used as a barn. He, he goes to places where it can be a little bit fractious. He's a player's coach. Players like him. He's a former player himself, of course, and a very successful one. So that that's in his favour. Whether those conditions can ever really be replicated if Everton can ever be even remotely comparable to a Bayern Munich or a, to a Paris Saint-Germain, a Real Madrid, an AC Milan, I don't know. And, and that's the question mark. And I have no doubt about his ability to justify his wage. Whether they can allow him to do that is kind of a different question. Mm. I don't think they could have attracted a better manager, Mike. I really don't. I think he, he's right up there, Carlo Ancelotti. Brilliant mind. Always really positive as well, I think in terms of the way he approaches games, likes to play with two two strikers, but he's flexible tactically. I just think with him, he's used to working with better players and particularly better defenders. And, and Everton, you look at the weakness, Seb's right, it's in defence and it's in defensive midfield. I know they've had injuries in, in that department, but, but yeah, without the ball. He's always worked with at least one sort of truly elite defender, if memory serves me right. The clubs that he's been at, he's worked with some unbelievable defenders down the years. It must be quite a shock to the system to be working with what, what he's got good at. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but there are levels, aren't there, in everything in life. And and, and what he's inherited there is 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 much, much lower in terms of, of quality. So, so yeah, I've got no problems with it. I think as a man manager, one of the best in the business and a good tactician too. So, no, look, Everton have done great to get him. Yeah, I think one of the, the sort of hallmarks of a, a great man manager is his ability to inspire confidence and trust within players and, and therefore make them better. Mm. You know, you look at some of the younger players at Everton, I think have flourished under him and will probably continue to do so. You know, Dominic... Calvert-Lewin's a case in point there. I'll go back to you, Aid, if I could, because obviously this is a question pretty close to home. Mm. Mikel Arteta, Mm. is he one of those managers and coaches who will make players better? I would imagine so, yeah. I think he already is making players better. He's, He's putting some really, really good habits into the Arsenal dressing room, habits that gone wrong basically for over a lengthy period of time a lot of the players have got into some bad habits and he's changed it yeah he's a coach definitely a coach that will will encourage young players we've seen that the way that he's he's played Bukayo Saka he's played Martinelli he's played played a, a number of these young boys and you can see before with your eyes that they're getting better so no he's he's, he's had a great start it's just a start though isn't it Ancelotti to Arteta is, is quite the the jump because Ancelotti's done it all Arteta's just just starting out but but yeah I, f- I find it hard to to pick 
pick really any faults with Mikel so far. He's galvanised the spirit. He's organised the team, re-energised the players. He's made some tough decisions. He's left out some some high-profile players. He's brought back some players into the fold that, that had looked lost previously. He's good with the media. I think the challenge is what he does in the transfer window and also finding a plan B. Because I think with, with, with City, we see, obviously, he worked at City under, with Pep. Great football, wonderful to watch. You see a very clear identity. Pep doesn't always have that plan B. It's it's that way or, or nothing at all. And, and I think with Mikel at Arsenal and the players he's got, he might need to have a plan B because plan A on its own with the budget that Arsenal have might not be enough. So he needs to he needs to prove that he's a real tactician over the next year or so. And I'm confident he will. Do you think he'll be given enough time? Because Arsenal as a club and perhaps a fan base aren't known for their patience, are they, Seb? No, but I, I, I think there's enough goodwill behind him, Mike. I think one of the problems with Unai Emery was that he came in promising things that he couldn't deliver. He wanted to make Arsenal the protagonist, which they absolutely weren't under him. Arteta, I think with with him, there's also an acceptance that he is a a project head coach. You are what he is today is not necessarily what he'll be in two or three years time. And there's a willingness to allow him to grow into his role. And also, you know, don't forget there's sort of there's obviously an appetite at Arsenal to develop the, the sort of the technical departments around him with you know Eddie coming in as a technical director but also the kind of the the reshaping of the entire football organization and, and so I think that Arteta rather than just being a figurehead in the kind of the old Arsene Wenger sense where he is responsible for everything and you know the trajectory of the club is is purely dependent on what he does I think he's he's a cog in the machine it's, it's almost kind of mm. um it's almost FA like he's a he's a little bit of a Gareth Southgate figure at Arsenal I'd say mm. because he's He's a uh, he he's a, a manifestation of the the mechanism as a whole that suits Arsenal. So I think they'll be. I think he'll receive plenty of patience. Right, we go on to Steve Bruce now. I don't think you can doubt his credentials as a fan and identifying with the club. You know, as a kid, he used to smuggle himself under the turnstiles, get in for nothing. He's talking about Newcastle being his last job in football. Will it be the sort of monument that he'd want to leave do you think Adrian because we all know the extraneous issues that he's got to deal with yeah well yeah I don't know is is the honest answer much might depend on what happens with Mike Ashley and potential new ownership because you know that new owners tend to to bring in their own managers don't you and and as well as he's doing he will be under threat if if Mike Ashley sells up and, and someone else comes in so who who knows on on his legacy whether he'll get the time? I think he's done great actually. I think the four that you've picked out today, the first four in the alphabet, are all pr- worthy of praise, and I definitely include Steve Bruce in that. I think the recruitment has been very good. I don't know, I don't know how much say he's he's had on it there, but but Sam Max, Joel Linton, really? Yeah, not Joel Linton. <laughs> Obviously, there's one big one big exception there. I think Jetro Williams was doing great until his injury. Sam Maximin is, is is arguably their most important player. Danny Rose, I think, was a was a great pickup. And look, they're solid. Nine clean sheets. Nine clean sheets is not too shabby for for a squad with Newcastle's you know depth. And it's not great depth, is it? So no, I think I think he's doing okay. Also likes the loyalty he showed Miguel Almiron. Load more managers. A younger manager. I'm t- I'm telling you now, a younger manager with less experience might have 
cut off Miguel Almiron with that with that long long run of of no no goals no no real major contributions playing well working hard but not really delivering the end product a lot of younger guys would have panicked there and maybe thought right I'm I'm leaving them out I'm dropping them I, I I'll get someone else in he showed remarkable patience and that patience is being rewarded so no look I, I think he's a smart manager he's got limitations but but so have Newcastle haven't they in what they can achieve so yeah it was solid from Steve Bruce this season and he's certainly been around, hasn't he, Seb? He has. I was looking at his record. I mean, he's his the number of, of jobs he's bounced through um, in his mm-hmm. career. And he obviously stopped playing in I think ninety six, ninety seven, something like that. And he's one of those guys. He's just he, he's had a club for eighteen months, with a few exceptions. Obviously, he was at Birmingham for a lot longer. He's had a club for eighteen months, delivers a period of initial improvement, and then moves on down the road. I I I don't mean to be disrespectful about Steve Bruce, but that he's that he's a Premier League manager at all. At the moment, given his best days, his his more innovative days, perhaps are probably behind him. I think that describes what Newcastle are quite well. It reminds me an awful lot of the Alan Pardew situation, actually, when you kind of you appoint a manager who, for want of a better expression, is kind of grateful to be there and doesn't cause too many issues in terms of how much money the club spends and what direction it has and sort of how it how it conducts itself and holds itself in public. I think I'm less impressed than Adrian by by what mm. Steve Bruce has done this year because I think I see Newcastle as a, a bit of a one-trick pony. They have one way of playing. They are a incredibly passive side. They sit behind the ball. I know there's an awful lot of frustration with with how I, I agree completely that Sir Maxman has been has been mm. certainly very watchable. Whether he's used in any other way than pick the ball deep and just run in a straight line with the ball, I, I don't know. I just think there's a I think, there's I, think a bit more I think it's confident. I think results, Seb, will will dictate it. I think the more the more positive results that they have, the more I'm not expecting them to be expansive and to suddenly become yeah. <laughs> Barcelona. But I do. I before this break, funnily enough, I think two of the last three or something along. I think I, I don't have the stats to hand, but they had more possession than their opponents for the first time in in, in for as long as I could remember. I felt like they were turning the corner in that regard. Still definitely a counter-attacking team. But but yeah, I, I think that if they can solidify mid-table, they might then become less passive. That that's my I, I can't disagree with you, you know, completely, but I think there's a there's a there's a slight reason. I think needs must initially, and once they once they get that confidence within everybody that, that they'll be more positive. Yeah, I suppose one team that won't play like Barcelona for the foreseeable future anyway is Burnley. Um, and I don't mean that in a in a nasty sense because I absolutely love Sean Dyche. I think he is consistently underestimated and overlooked. You know, we were talking about Ancelotti for Everton. I thought he would have been a perfect manager for Everton had he wanted to leave Turf Moor. Been there seven and a half years an identifiable style. There's an intensity to not just their play, but their preparation. Is a good all-round character who basically overcomes this sort of, you know, nightclub bouncer stereotype that he's got. I think he's done a fantastic job and he is still one of the last dynastic managers who's built a club from the bottom up. Should he get more credit, Seb? Absolutely. You know what, in terms of him being a character, he's probably my favourite press conference manager just because he'll be asked a question probably by one of the, the local journalists and he'll just talk. He will he'll speculate, he'll theorise on things, he'll tell you what he really thinks about issues within the game. 
sometimes he can be a little bit tiresome about the diving issue. I accept that. But Dash is one of my favorite people to listen to in the game because he's he's very forthright. And you're right, he's a he's a great club builder. A couple of weeks ago, I was I was doing some research for some work we were doing at Tifo Football into sort of the, the renovation of the Burnley Academy. And obviously, he's been a big part of that. He's enabled that by providing the Premier League stability and the money that comes with it. And beneath the surface, Burnley have done some very, very impressive things in terms of increasing the numbers of youth team players they've got playing international football, number of minutes they're receiving elsewhere in the football pyramid. So you have the surface, which is looks a bit 4-4-2 and stale. I accept that they're not everyone's cup of tea. But they're still a club evolving. And they're still a club that have been punching well above their weight in a very unfashionable catchment area. One of the uh, sort of more instructive aspects of that academy project is you realise just how difficult it is for a club like Burnley to attract the kind of players who potentially would enable the sort of style that they're accused of not having. And that's really the context within which to judge someone like Sean Dyche because you see the conditions in which he's working. And yeah, I've got tremendous respect. And there have been a couple of occasions over the last few years where people have gone have gone early and written the article which says, oh, it's time to move on. You know, it's, you know, he's, you know, Burnley are sort of hovering around the 17th, 18th, that kind of position. And, you know, you've got to change this now. But he always finds a way to reestablish not necessarily a huge amount of momentum, but the stability. It's enormously impressive. You agree with that, Tim? I? <laughs> I'm less impressed. I'm less impressed with Daesh in a press conference than Sarah. <laughs> but that's you know because I, I not that's not part of my brief to really you know write up. I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not that sort of journalist. I guess I don't have to worry about that. I, I, personally, I'm not a fan of some of his rhetoric. That he comes in with a bit of an agenda, and <laughs> um, it's just it's an understatement. And yeah, he gets on my nerves. If if I'm honest, comes out with some real tosh at times. What I do admire about him is his work with the players. Clearly, superb on the training ground. Very clear, isn't he? In his style, I love the way he didn't panic last year. Because they were having a proper wobble, but he 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 kept calm and and he he got back to where they need to be. Really reliant, obviously, on Tarkovsky and me. He's, he's got a great combination there. But but what I also think he's done well this season, in particular, is he's mixed up his forward line. He, in the past, it's just been the target man and Barnes, Wood and Barnes normally. This time around, he, he's rotated a little bit. He's brought in Rodriguez. He's brought in Vidris. Other players have had opportunities, and they've shown a little bit more, a little bit more flair, really, a bit more excitement up top. McNeil is a, a feather in his cap, of course. And you look at this season: eleven wins, eleven wins for Burnley this season. Only five clubs in the Premier League have more than eleven wins to this point. So this season, with the players, with the team, he's been outstanding it really has you know this is this is not far away from that season where they they qualified for Europe in my opinion superb from Deitch in a footballing sense yeah okay it's time for scores on the doors I suppose mm. um I'm quite happy to start and I'll probably put my neck on the block here I'd give Sean Deitch eight out of ten I give Ancelotti and Arteta seven out of ten and Steve Bruce six out of ten who are you going to get abuse from uh, after this decision, Seb? <laughs> are we are we are we great? Are we grading this season, or are we just are we grading them? You know, as... I think the body of work. But all oh, right, okay, right. Oh, as a body of work, I'll go exactly with you, Mike. I think Ancelotti is a seven only because I I don't know because of the caveats we've mentioned before with Everton and their status within the game. Arteta, 
I got on with Adrian. It's been it's been good enough so far without really being anything definitive. Bruce is a six because Newcastle don't allow a manager to be anything more than a six. <laughs> and yeah, Dyche is. I think I, I think I think eight is. Uh, I think eight is a bit stingy, Mike. Actually, I think Dyche is. I think Dyche is more in the sort of the nine ten region because I, I I don't honestly think he could have done anything more with the resources he's had. I do agree with Adrian about some of the things he says, particularly on simulation, because that's a drum that he could put down for a while, I think. But yeah, enormously impressive as an achievement. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think Ancelotti's been undersold here. I think you look at Ancelotti's career as a manager, he's, he's got to be a nine. Arteta's just starting out, but I like what I've seen. So so seven. Bruce, for reasons agreed, pretty, yeah, six is probably the ceiling that he could have. And and yeah, I, I, I find it hard to, to look beyond an eight. For Sean Dyche, in terms of the work he's he's done over a long period, I still think there is a question mark. But and, and will he ever get that opportunity to work with a, a more talented group of players? I, I'd love to see it. I really would because there's a potential. You think he could be a Simeone type, where he'd really galvanise a, a group of super talented players and get them to be incredibly hardworking but effective as well in the Burnley style. I, I want to see him get that chance. But hand on heart, do I think he'll get it? No. Hmm. I want to stay with you, um, Aid, if I may. In this series, we're, we're doing a, a series of you know, tournament reviews, events in the football calendar which have had a big impact on us. If you had to pick one tournament to talk about, what would that one yeah, be? Yeah, um, Spain 82, World Cup 82, because it's the first I can remember. <laughs> Um, I the was the first one I ever covered. Oh, <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, it, I was seven, coming up towards eight at the time, and I absolutely was gripped to it. I can't, I can't, obviously, you know, certain things are sketchy now. It's many, many years ago. But wow, <laughs> it, it, it was a festival of football, a great tournament. I, I mean, it was a tournament with flaws, certainly with the setup, because. Younger listeners might find it hard to believe that, but you didn't go straight into a knockout stage. You went into a second round of groups, which was open to to dodginess, basically, in terms of fixing results so that you, you could get, get through to the next round. And it, it led to some quite boring games, actually, in that, in that second stage. You, you went from the second group stage into the semi-finals. I don't know where to start. I mean, Scotland were in it, which was great. And they were quite exciting for a bit. They led the mighty Brazil with one of the goals, best goals Scotland have ever scored at a major tournament with Neri. But they one poked... of the great one of the great banners at that game, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Communism against alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. But it was a great goal, but they poked the bear, didn't they? And and, and they got battered. Uh, junior uh, Socrates, one of my favourite names ever in football, Falcao's. Zico was m- my favourite player of that tournament. Just just brilliant. Um, so many stories. I mean, England scored the, the quickest goal, didn't they, in their first game against... France, 27 seconds, Brian Robson. That was a false dawn. Um, <laughs> there were some classic games, you know, Italy, Brazil was was just amazing. Paolo Rossi was the, the star, of course, at the tournament, scored a hat-trick in that game. We had Schumacher and Battiston wiping out, the, the German keeper wiping out the, the French forwards. It had a bit of everything. And of course, the, the picture that you will always see when, when anyone talks about the 82 World Cup is that celebration from Tardelli in the, in the final where he's just a veins are just popping out of, <laughs> out of his skin it was just 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 pure 
football in emotion. Yeah, I'll never forget that tournament. It was the, it's the first, like I say, first one I can remember. But it was, it had so many glorious moments and other not so glorious moments too that I'm sure Mike can remember. Yeah, it did have a massive effect on me. I was working for a, a group of regional newspapers at the time as a kid. To give you an idea of how different it was in terms of the culture, we turned up at Bilbao Airport with the team. The team gave us a lift to our hotel, the Journos Hotel. I remember it was the first time I ever met Ray Wilkins. You know, sadly, we had the anniversary of his death at the weekend. And he was one of the youngest players. I was the youngest journo. And I, I said to him, you know, do they rip it out of you like they rip it out of me? And he said, oh, God, he said, you, you know, you have a, a, so much grief that you've got to deal with if you're the kid. <laughs> and that was the start of a relationship we had, you know, for the next 40 years or whatever it was. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, it, just a, a wonderful, wonderful man. And and. You know, football's quite a bit of business sometimes, but I've never yet met anyone who's got a bad word to say about him, which is, which is I think, very good. But it was, it was a weird time. You mentioned the 27-second goal. In the press box, I was sitting next to an Argentinian journalist. And if you remember, this was just after the Falklands War. <laughs> so it was, it was a little bit, well, actually, mate, you know, it's only football. And and it, it was funny because there was a common language. You know, I know it's a cliche, but football became a common language. But also in a journalistic sense, that World Cup was a harbinger of things to come. It was the first World Cup that was attended by a group of guys called the Rotters. Now, the Rotters were news correspondents, news journos who were assigned to the England football team. And they were an item. As I said, when we arrived, Bill Bow, they'd been there before. They got in a couple of days early. And they then created the legend of Dead Dog Beach. You know, the aforesaid canine corpse was uh, procured by the rotters and taken to the beach underneath the terraced hotel where the England team had uh, breakfast. So the story was, health scare, England, England team turn up. They always, they, they always had something called the Ring of Steel. Whenever you went anywhere in the world, there was a Ring of Steel, i.e. people, you know, there were police around and everything else. But we'd never had a dead dog involved before, and uh, it was fairly bizarre, fairly bizarre. So where did they get a dead dog from? Yeah, I didn't know time went back that far, Mike, I'll be honest with you. 1982, <laughs> that's like, that's like a, 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 ADBC crossover. That's the... <laughs> I remember actually I was reading um I was reading a, an interview mm-hmm. with Harold Schumacher about the Batstone incident where he he kind of claims um firstly he didn't mean it that he he tried to get out of Batstone's way which I was a, at the game he meant it yeah right and secondly the one issue that the other issue people have always had with it is that he didn't go and check on Batstone when he was hurt he, he sort of just walked away he didn't try and uh, mm. didn't try and do anything and he said well no the thing was is that sort of there were so many people there that I, I wanted to give him breathing space which I just thought like <laughs> just it's a, it's a very fanciful reading of the past I think from uh, from him yeah it, uh, again we, we we've as with every competition in the 80s the color 
is amazing. Mm. The kind of yeah. the um, the aesthetic of the tournament. I know I bored on about this in the last episode, <laughs> but it's really, really important what a tournament looks like. And I'd have loved to, have, I'd love to have been alive to kind of just get lost in that sort of tournament. Uh, love to have been alive, making me feel old. We should give it. We should give it. <laughs> we should give a mention. We should give a mention to, to Northern Ireland, by the way. Jerry Armstrong, of course, scored the winner against yeah. Spain. Uh, yeah. We had a ten-one. Hungary didn't they beat El Salvador? I think ten-one. So it was it was a crazy tour, and we had, and it was the tournament that stopped the final round of group matches being played at different times. It's Germany and Austria. That, that they, they, yeah, yeah, they played out a shameful one 0 win to, for Germany that that took both teams through, and then every major tournament since has, has made sure the last round of group games are, are at the same time. So yeah, it was it was cracking. But you're right, Spain in the sunshine. It was always going to be colourful, wasn't it? Yeah, great to watch. Yeah, it was a mad, mad tournament, but I loved it, I must admit. Just want to obviously bring things around to its usual conclusion. Our thoughts for the day. I've got mine in my head. Seb, anything you want to get off the uh, chest? Yeah, Matt Hancock. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's not an unambiguous situation because, you know, the, the highest earners in football are in a position to alleviate a lot of the suffering in the country or some of the suffering. What I say, though, is I feel like he's prodding the game for the sake of earning a round of applause from the gallery. It's kind of the Premier League and Premier League footballers, by definition, have have become a, a symbol of affluence and decadence. And I understand why that is. And the public have a right to retaliate to that if they want to, because a lot of people are facing hardship. I mean, all three of us have suffered, you know, cuts in, in earnings and it's difficult and we're the lucky ones in this situation. So there are a lot of people in this country that are hurting. It is not the government's place, in my opinion, to point and invite a pile on. I know we're not supposed to be particularly political on this podcast, but it, it does annoy me given sort of some of the other people in this country that are given a free ride. And I've got no problem in people being encouraged to do the right thing as long as that encouragement is being offered around evenly. And what I've seen in the last few days has been disgraceful, actually. Really disgraceful. It's just, it's, it's also horrible to watch. Yeah, that's slightly unusual to my usual, uh, slightly different to my usual uh, thought for the day. But it's just, it's wound me right up over the weekend. And it's not just because I'm in isolation. <laughs> Anything round you up, mate? Uh, well, yeah, that wound me up as well. Yeah, no, no, well said. No, I'm going to go on a more positive note here. Just spare a thought for Mick McCarthy. Um, because Mick McCarthy has left his job as the Republic of Ireland manager. There are so many more important issues to hand. Seb's just gone over one. We've spent a lot of time talking about the, the big issues. But I thought he did a brilliant job with Ireland. And it was always the case that he was going to have to hand over the keys to Stephen Kenny. But of course, he had the, the he could have taken them to the Euros. They had a playoff with Slovakia planned, of course. And, and, it, and it isn't going to happen, not until next summer. And, and rather than keep him on, they've... They've brought forward the, the transition and he, he sort of slipped out the back door as, as Mick, McCarthy, Mick McCarthy with no real fanfare. I just think he's a great fella. Really, really like him. He's done a, I think he's done an excellent job with the team. And yeah, my thought for the day is where will Mick McCarthy pop up next? When, when normality resumes, I expect him to be one of the most sort of in-demand managers out there. But I, I, I think he'll, he'll make a terrific appointment probably for someone in the championship. Yeah, great football coach, but also a terrific bloke. I'll end it. I know I'm going to be talking about money again, but this is a personal plea for the mileage men. Now, you might not know who they are, but 
They're the part-time scouts on 40p a mile who can make clubs millions by getting the right player at the right time. They haven't got club contracts. There are no games for them to go to. They're struggling. A small supportive gesture from their clubs perhaps will mean an awful lot and cost very little. Thanks as ever for joining us and please stay safe out there. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.